You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 1 today as we continue our series in Gospel Foundations. This series on Gospel Foundations has been focused on uh, helping us to see how the gospel shapes not only the beliefs in our church, but the practices, the, the regular spiritual disciplines that we exercise as a church together. Uh, it's not as if doctrine exists in one world and practice exists in another. Uh, the doctrine of the gospel shapes everything that we want to do as a church uh, in our uh, in the events that we host and in the ways that we relate to one another. Last Sunday we saw a little bit about this when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we examined what we call uh, sharing evidences of grace. Sharing evidences of grace. This is the practice of identifying and communicating how you see God at work in the lives of fellow believers. It's it's about learning how to see people differently. And it's about learning how to speak to people differently. We, we learn to see people through the lens of the cross, to look beyond the, the, the sinner and to see the saint. And as we look at our fellow believers as those who are chosen, those who are precious, those who are made holy by God, who are called to be saints, we learn to, to share how we see God working in their lives. We call that evidences of grace. Today, we're going to examine a practice uh, that is related to sharing evidences of grace, but is distinct from it. Um, We call it biblical fellowship, biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship is often the context in which we uh, are given an opportunity to share evidences of grace, but we can also do other things as well. It's uh, sharing evidences of grace is kind of a subcategory of this larger category we call biblical fellowship. Now, many of you have probably used the word fellowship before, um, or you're familiar with some kind of vague definition of what it means, uh, we often know it as what we do when the service ends and we're all kind of mingling in the lobby or we're gathering together for our uh, Sunday post-service meal. Uh, Now, that's a common way of viewing fellowship. Uh, You could call it church socializing. It's, it's socializing that happens in a church context. Uh, and that's important. It's important for us to just enjoy one another's company, uh, to, to build relationships the way that we would build with, with anyone uh, by, by letting people know what we have in common, what we're going through, what our interests are. That's important. That's why churches build fellowship halls. That's why churches have fellowship meals. Uh, it's important for us to meet together in a social context. That's a good thing, but it is not biblical fellowship. Others may think of fellowship as what happens in a small group context, uh, whether uh, people are studying the Bible together with a smaller group of people, usually in a home, or uh, they're kind of engaging in a deeper level of interaction where people are sharing about um, their struggles Um, inviting people into their lives and receiving counsel from their fellow believers. Those are both wonderful things. And actually, we do both of those things in our small groups. 
but neither of them are biblical fellowship. And I think that's important for us to remember because uh, we tend to say, okay, there's, there's maybe levels of fellowship, and the highest level of fellowship is when people get really personal with one another, when people start saying, you know, I don't have life together, uh, and I, I need some help. And, and people surround that person and give mutual encouragement and, and counsel and prayer. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. But, but there's a distinction between sharing and fellowship. And there's also a distinction between counseling and fellowship. Fellowship can, can involve sharing and it can involve counseling, but it is, it is something different. Um, the essence of biblical fellowship is something different. So what is it? What, what is biblical fellowship? That's what we're going to spend our morning uh, today examining in 1 John chapter 1. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, uh, particularly the first 10 verses, uh, th- this is one of the main passages in the New Testament defining and describing what biblical fellowship is. It's found in uh, the Apostle John's letter that we call 1 John. And uh, for those who know the New Testament, the Apostle John wrote a, a significant portion of the New Testament. He wrote the fourth gospel, which is called the Gospel of John, uh, which is one of the most significant accounts of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. But he also wrote three smaller letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Um, in all that the Apostle John wrote, he only used the word fellowship four times. And each of those uses of the word fellowship are found in our text today. Now, this isn't the only place in the New Testament when we can learn about what biblical fellowship is and how we practice it, but it is one of the most significant. If we are to practice biblical fellowship faithfully and biblically, uh, we need to understand this text. And so that's what we're going to endeavor to do uh, this morning. So uh, you can follow along uh, on the screen or you can follow along with your own Bible. Uh, I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, the title of this sermon is The Joy of Biblical Fellowship. The Joy of Biblical Fellowship. We're going to have three points today uh, that each tell us a little bit about what fellowship is, what it involves, and what it is about, what it looks like for us to practice biblical fellowship. First, fellowship involves testifying. Second, fellowship involves obeying. And third, fellowship involves confessing. Testifying, obeying, and confessing. Again, this doesn't capture all that biblical fellowship is, but it does, I believe, accurately reflect what our text says about what biblical fellowship is. And if we are to practice biblical fellowship faithfully, we must learn to practice it in this way. So let's begin with our first point. Fellowship involves testifying. I think it's helpful for us to recognize that the Apostle John wrote this letter out of concern for false teaching. There was a faction of people who had broken away from the early church, and uh, they claimed to possess special revelation, apart from the teaching of the apostles that led to a personal relationship with God. And they were making all sorts of claims. Um, But among those claims, and John addresses these claims in his letters, uh, were the claims that Jesus was not the Christ and the claims that Jesus' death was not necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what made them so dangerous to the early church was that they were still claiming to be Christians, to be faithful followers of Christ. Um, they, they weren't just wolves. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. And that is why they were such a threat to the early church. Now, the Apostle John was understandably concerned about this because at the time, the church was still in its infancy. And the Apostle John was one of the early church's spiritual fathers. And so, as any protective father would do, uh, he was eager to guard the infant church from being kidnapped by false teaching. In order to do that, he he finds it necessary to remind the Christians that he's writing to about his credentials. And that's what we see him doing in verses 1 and 2. John reminds them that he was one of the original disciples who had walked with Jesus. He had seen Jesus with his own eyes. He had heard Jesus with his own ears. He had even touched Jesus with his own hands. He had been with Jesus since the earliest days of his ministry. He had seen Jesus crucified, and he had seen Jesus risen from the dead. If anyone was qualified to talk about who Jesus is and and what he had come to accomplish, it was John. And that's what he does in verse 1. John describes Jesus as being the word of life. He, he, he says, we have, we have come to tell you concerning the word of life. Now, this is an interesting title because we don't usually call people a word or call people words. Words convey a message. And usually those messages are conveyed through the use of letters and syllables. We, we need to learn a language to know how to communicate words and messages. But, but here John is telling us that Jesus himself is the word of life. The, the message of God, 
The life-giving message of God himself to the world is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word of life, the word who became flesh. And that's what he, uh, John points our attention to in verse 2, where he says two more things about Jesus. He calls Jesus the life that was made manifest. The life that was made manifest. Jesus is the word of life, the message of God made manifest to us so that humanity could, could see the word, hear the word, touch the word for ourselves. Verse 2 also calls Jesus the eternal life. The eternal life. This, this word of life who became manifested in the person of a human being um, did not begin his existence at that moment of manifestation. He has always been life itself. He is the eternal life. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is eternal life and he gives eternal life to those who believe in his name. And so what John is doing is he's reminding his readers that they don't need any special knowledge about, about God to enter into a relationship with him. But what they do need is to have uh, right views of who Jesus is. If we get the identity and the work of Jesus wrong, then it is impossible for us to have a relationship with God. It doesn't matter if we have special experiences, special spiritual experiences, or what we think are, are direct revelations of who God is and how to enter into a relationship with him. We need to have right beliefs about Jesus if we are to enter into fellowship with him. Jesus is the word of life. Jesus is the manifested life. And Jesus is the eternal life. Now, notice what John does with these truths about Jesus. In verse 2, he says that he will testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. So what John's doing is he's taking the truths about Jesus and he's now communicating those truths to his readers and communicating to us across the ages uh, to us. Uh, he says that again in verse 3, where he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And so John's not just hoarding this knowledge about Jesus for himself. He is actively sharing this knowledge and persuading others to believe what he knows is true. He is proclaiming it and testifying it to others. Now, what is the purpose? What, what was the reason why John did this? Well, he tells us in verse 3. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. John is telling us that biblical fellowship must begin with biblical beliefs about Jesus. It sounds simple, right? But we, we can't ignore this fact because it's so fundamental. Biblical fellowship begins with biblical beliefs about Jesus. Uh, people can't just have fellowship with anyone out there. We, we need to gather around common beliefs about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. You know, enjoying a good meal with friends is not fellowship. Going on a special trip with loved ones is not fellowship. Fellowship is a distinctly Christian experience that can only be experienced between Christians. But, but what is this experience? Pastor Tim got a little bit into it uh, earlier on in our service, but, but what exactly are we talking about experiencing when we have fellowship with one another? 
Well, this Greek word for fellowship is the word koinonia, koinonia, and it's a it's a special word that is used to uh, describe um, a special kind of relationship. In fact, the uh, the, the the best lexicons out there uh, show us that in the ancient world, the word koinonia was often used to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife. Uh, it, it's it's implying an intimate relationship uh, that emerges out of uh, sharing life together. Um, it is it is describing the highest order of personal relationship that comes from loving the same things and having the same values. And that that's actually why sharing a meal or going on a trip with with dear friends can can feel like fellowship. You're, you're sharing in something together. Now, you, you may have heard that lovers love face-to-face. They, they are absorbed in one another. Uh, friends, on the other hand, love side-by-side. They are absorbed in something outside of themselves. Uh, they, their attention is fixed on, on a beautiful art or a uh, majestic scene in nature or a good film. But as they enjoy it, they are enjoying it together. They're enjoying it side by side. And as they enjoy it together, their their hearts are being knit together in this common experience of sharing in something, participating in something together. Biblical fellowship is just like that. Except um, when we enjoy fellowship, we're not just enjoying a painting or uh, a scene in nature or a good movie. We're enjoying Jesus himself. We're, we're admiring Jesus side by side as companions, beholding the beauty and glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ together. And when we do that, our hearts are being knit together in a closeness of relationship, which we call fellowship. We experience fellowship when we behold Jesus together. Now, one of the most beautiful expressions of Biblical fellowship is singing together in worship. When we're singing together, we're not just kind of individually expressing our delight in Jesus. We're delighting in Jesus together. We're delighting in him together with those who are around us. And we are reminded that that our devotion to Christ is not solitary, uh, we're not doing it by ourselves. We're, we're standing side by side with fellow believers, enjoying Jesus and expressing our delight in Jesus together. And that's why we say that true corporate worship isn't just singing with our mouths. True corporate worship is singing with our ears. We, we listen and we hear our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ declaring the same love and devotion and passion for Jesus that we feel in our hearts. And when we do that, we experience fellowship. That's one of the greatest losses that we've suffered, not only in our church, but churches all around the world, because we're not able to sing with our ears. Uh, We can't hear the collective voices of God's people delighting in Jesus together. We can try to use our imagination we can try to, to scroll through the pictures and see people sing, but it's just not the same as hearing the words being proclaimed through song. That's why one of the things I'm most looking forward to, and I know this is the case for many of you, 
is being gathered together so that we can hear each other sing. Another way that we experience fellowship together is through the Lord's Supper. Uh, you know, Paul actually talks about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as being a fellowship. It's a fellowship with God through Christ, but it is also a fellowship with one another as we share with one bread and we share in one cup. We, we fellowship as we stand side by side and participate in Christ together. And of course, we cannot do that either. We can't do that until the church is able to gather again physically. Uh, we are missing out on many of the ways in which we can experience and express fellowship. But one of the ways that we can still experience and express fellowship to one another is by using our words. We, we still have that. We can still communicate with one another uh, on Zoom or by phone or by email or by letter. There are so many ways that we can still communicate through words. And that's what the Apostle John is doing in his letter. He is, he is writing down his words to his fellow believers so that they may have fellowship with him. Uh, that, that, this has been one of the, the great joys that I've had as I've, as I've connected with many of you um, over the past weeks. Uh, over and over again, I've heard you s use your words to talk about the faithfulness of God, to talk about the sovereignty of God, to talk about the goodness of God, to talk about the grace of God. And when I hear that, you know, what's happening is my, my heart is, is rising to God. And, and my heart is rising to you because we are, we are sharing a common faith in who God is and what he is doing in our lives. That is fellowship. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to give a speech. But the simple statement that, that God is with me, I believe that, that God is for me, God is with me, that Christ has, has forgiven me of my sins, that Christ has secured my eternal future and therefore I'm not afraid. There, there is fellowship to be experienced in those little moments, in those simple words. Biblical fellowship is a wonderful thing. It's a simple thing, but uh, often it's the simplest things in life that are the most wonderful. And I think a lot of us have experienced that uh, as a lot of the excess in our lives has been stripped away. And we're back down to the bare bones of life, of family, of church, of the word of God, of, of family worship, of, uh, of eating more simply, of uh, you know, not having sports events or entertainment events to attend. Life, life is simpler. And I think we've all come to enjoy the simple things a lot more. Biblical fel fellowship is one of those things. It is simple, but it is wonderful. And John, that, that's what John says, actually, in verse 4. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Biblical fellowship is a joyful experience, both for the one who is speaking and for the one who is listening. There, there is joy to be experienced with one another as we stand side by side as companions, beholding the beauty and glory of Christ together. Now, that's how we enter into fellowship. We, we, we enter into fellowship by sharing a common faith in Christ and communicating that faith through words, whether it's words that are sung or words that are spoken or words that are written. Uh, we, we need to use our words 
to enter into fellowship with our fellow believers. But before that happens, something very important has to happen first. And uh, that's what John addresses in the next few verses, leading to our second point. Fellowship involves obeying. Fellowship involves obeying. In verse 5, John says that the essence of this message that he heard from Jesus and that he's now proclaiming to them is that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If you read through John's epistles, or better yet, you read through his gospel, uh, you'll realize that this metaphor of, of light and darkness is one of John's favorite ways to describe the different paths that people can take in life. If, if you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with God through Christ, you are walking in the light. But if you are not in Christ, then you are walking in the darkness. Now, our assumption might be, as, as good evangelical believers, is that, well, walking in the light means believing in Jesus. It means believing the gospel, trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And, that, and that's true. But John's going to show us that that's not all there is to it. Uh, it's not just a matter of belief. In fact, verse 6 warns us that we can say that we have fellowship with God while not knowing God at all. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So what does it mean to walk in the light? And what does it mean to walk in the darkness? Well, notice that last little phrase at the end of verse 6. It says that those who walk in darkness do not practice the truth. They don't practice the truth, or as the uh, NIV puts it, they do not live out the truth. For, for John and for the writers of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, truth isn't just a proposition to believe. Truth is uh, a reality to be obeyed. You know, when we think about truth propositions, you know, the population of Canada is around 34 million or there are X number of COVID-19 cases around the world, uh, we just say, okay, I believe that, that's true. But when it comes to biblical truth, truth has a, a, a practical angle to it. It is meant to shape the way that we live so that we don't just believe it, we live it. We practice the truth. And that's what walking in the light requires, believing and practicing the truth. So if we say that we believe the truth, but we do not practice the truth, John's saying that we're still in darkness. If we try to use more familiar language to talk about what John is talking about here, uh, he's talking about unrepentant sin. Failing to practice the truth is failing to repent of our sin. If we sin without repentance, if we don't practice what we are preaching, then it doesn't matter if we say that we have fellowship with God. We are still in darkness. So walking in the light means both believing in Jesus and obeying Jesus. It means turning to Jesus in faith and in repentance. And that's why verse 7 says that we must walk in the light as he is in the light. Jesus is the light. He says that in John chapter 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me shall not walk in darkness. But he's also created a path of light for us to follow. If we are 
going to say that we walk with Jesus. We must walk in the light as he is in the light so that we would have fellowship with him. Now, now here's the key to uh, what we're talking about when it comes to biblical fellowship. Now, notice the result of walking in the light with Jesus through trust and repentance. In verse 7, John says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship with one another. Now, that's, that's kind of like the plot twist in these first few verses in John's letter. We would expect it to say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God. But what he writes instead is we have fellowship with one another. Why does he do that? Why does he do that when he was so clearly talking about fellowship with God? Well, it's because the two are inseparable. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another are really just two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. If we are to say we have fellowship with God, we must have fellowship with one another. And if we are to have fellowship with one another, we must first have fellowship with God. In his commentary on 1 John, the Australian scholar Colin Cruz says this, There is no real fellowship with God which is not expressed in fellowship with other believers. Now, I wonder if you have heard of the myth of the churchless Christian. You know, these are people who say that they believe in Jesus, but they no longer believe in the church. For some of them, it's because they're just too busy. For others, it's because they've been too hurt. Uh, Whatever the case, they've chosen to exist as kind of these independent islands of spirituality apart from the rest of the body. Well, verse 7 says that such people are a myth. They're a myth because they don't exist. It is impossible for someone to be both a Christian and churchless. Because if you don't care about the church, you've shown that you don't care about Christ. Christ is the head of the body. In fact, Christ associates himself so closely with the church that he calls the church his body and his bride. We can't love Christ while hating his body. We can't love Christ while hating his bride. True fellowship with God must result in true fellowship with other believers. If you lose one, you lose the other. You remember what the apostle, uh, what, what Acts chapter 9 says Uh, When Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, is in the midst of persecuting the church, and as he's on the road to Damascus, he has an encounter with the risen Christ. And, uh, And what does Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. And to abandon the church is to abandon Jesus. Those who walk in the light with Jesus will have fellowship with one another. So if you don't have fellowship with one another, you're not in the light. You're not having fellowship with God. Those who love Jesus will love the church. And is the church perfect? Of course not. The church has warts. 
The church has imperfections and flaws, and it's, it's still in the process of, of being made beautiful through the washing of the word. But those who love Jesus will love his bride and will do whatever they can and will pray regularly that the church will become beautiful through their participation in the church. But you may ask, well, how is, how is that possible? Especially for those who may be here who are one of these churchless Christians, you might say, how, how can I recommit myself to people who have hurt me so much or to an institution that has disappointed me again and again? Well, this leads to our final lesson about biblical fellowship. Fellowship involves confessing. Now, John, he was a seasoned pastor. Um, he, he knew what the church needed and he wasn't naive He knew that believers would sin against one another. He knew that they would say things and do things that would cause hurt and would create rifts between brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why he follows his word about fellowship with a word about sin. Again, in verse seven, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. My friends, this is the only way that we can have true, biblical, lasting, persevering fellowship with one another. We need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus from all sin. We need to be freed from the power of sin, and we need to be freed from the penalty of sin. And increasingly, we need to be freed from the presence of sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we stop sinning. You know, when we become Christians, we very much still continue to sin. John emphasizes this twice. In verse 8, he says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10, he he increases the stakes. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. The reality of our fallen world is, is that we will continue to sin even after the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us and we have been given the gift of of new life, of regeneration in Christ. We will continue to sin until the day that we die or until the day that Christ returns. But by the grace of God, he has made a way for us to to be cleansed, to be cleansed from our sins. Not just from some sins, not just from the presentable sins, not just from the sins that God has been given a lot of time to get over, but it says right there in verse 7, from all sins. He washes away all of the ugly stains of sin and makes us white as snow. My friends, this, this is the foundation of biblical fellowship. John is showing us that if we are to practice biblical fellowship, it must be built on a gospel foundation. If the gospel isn't central in our church and in our relationships, there's no way that we're going to be able to have and sustain fellowship with one another because we are going to disappoint one another. I'm going to disappoint you as your pastor. We are going to hurt each other. And when, when that happens, we're going to be tempted to take our ball and go home. To say, 
I'm going to live here in my own individual island of spirituality, and uh, I'll meet up with you guys uh, in heaven. We're going to be tempted to do that. The only way that we can sustain and persevere in fellowship is through building our church on the gospel. We learn to forgive one another, and we only learn to forgive one another by remembering how God has forgiven us through the cleansing of the cross. Again, Colin Cruz, he writes, walking in the light does not mean that those who do so never sin, but that they do not seek to hide that fact from God. They don't seek to hide it from God, and we might add they don't seek to hide it from one another. Uh, verse 9 uh, says that we are to confess our sins. We are to confess our sins. Now, this this phrase, confess our sins, you know, this account of people speaking about their sins, bringing it out into the open, it only happens four times in the New Testament. One of them is here. The other one is in the accounts of, of people coming to John the Baptist for his uh, baptism of repentance. It says in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew that they came confessing their sins. Uh, the other time where it says it is in Acts chapter 19. When the Ephesian converts, the people who had been practicing sorcery and witchcraft, uh, come to Christ and they repent of their sins, it says that as they're burning their books, they're, they're confessing their sins. And then the third time it talks about confession of sin is in, John, uh, is in James chapter 5, which says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. In other words, uh, the three other times when confession of sin is mentioned in New Testament, it's always in a public context. It's never private. Uh, that's not to say we can't confess our sins privately, but the, the emphasis in the New Testament is that confession of sin is to be done in the presence of other believers. The same is likely true here in verse nine. John's talking about confessing our sins to one another. He's talking about believers gathering together in fellowship and being open and transparent about their sins. The Bible never says that confessing sins to fellow believers is a precondition to forgiveness. Okay? We're not advocating a Catholic doctrine of forgiveness here. But it does talk about how the experience of that forgiveness, the experience of that cleansing, may only be felt and known when you engage in public confession. Now, when I say public confession, I'm not saying on the Zoom calls, you let everybody know the 10 different ways that you sinned this morning. Uh, it, we're just talking about sharing your sins with trusted believers, um, people who will help you, who will pray for you, who will walk alongside you as you work out your repentance. Okay, so... Let's just make sure we don't misunderstand that. Public confession means sharing our sins with trusted fellow believers. Now, John describes this confession in verse 9. He says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, our, our forgiveness and our cleansing were both secured the moment that Jesus died and said, It is finished. Right? It was all secured on the cross. But the experience of that forgiveness and the experience of that cleansing is, is known. And, and it enters into our lives 
when we confess our sins to one another. Now, this may be why some of us constantly live under a, a burden of guilt and shame. Uh, we, we've never really experienced what these verses are talking about, this, this cleansing, this feeling that I am, I am washed clean, that Christ has, has taken all the, the, the filth of my sin and my shame and, and washed me clean. Perhaps the reason why you've never experienced it or you haven't experienced for a long time is because you have not confessed your sins to trusted brothers and sisters. You've never opened your life up to others in transparency and honesty. Now that may be because you're a proud person. I mean, I'm a proud person. Uh, I'm tempted in that way and I don't want other people to know my sins. I need to fight for humility to say, uh, it's more important for me to receive the grace of 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 forgiveness and cleansing than to keep up my my reputation as being a, a, a I don't know, I don't, I don't think I have this reputation, but any perceived reputation of being a man who has it all together. We, we, we value confession more than we value our reputations. But perhaps the other reason why we don't practice confession is because we've never been part of a church uh, where confession of sin would be received in a gracious way. Maybe in the past, For some of you, confessing your sins would have resulted in shame and embarrassment. Maybe in the past, confessing your sins would have resulted in self-righteous judgment from others. Maybe in the past, confessing your sins would have resulted in you being removed from serving in the church. And so you've, you've tried your best to make it seem like everything in your life is always fine. That, that you, 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 you plaster that smile on your face and try to make it so that nobody has anything to see. Um, everything is fine in your life. Well, my friends, that's not what a church that is built on the gospel looks like. A church that is built on the gospel changes us into the kinds of people who respond to the sins of others with grace, with mercy, with compassion. We, we learn to respond not with self-righteous judgment, but with empathy and with a desire to help our struggling brothers and sisters through prayer and encouragement. The gospel reminds us that we are all sinners saved by grace. Or as the old saying goes, we are all just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We are nothing in ourselves. We have no reason to be proud or to judge others when they bring out their sins. We are in the same boat. I think it was Matt Chandler who said that one of the ways you can tell if people really believe the gospel is if they confess their sins to one another because they know that they won't be judged. Instead, they know that they will be helped because the people they're confessing to know that they're sinners who are just as much in need of help as them. If we are to be people who walk in the light, we can't be people who cover up the darkness in our lives. Light exposes what is in the darkness. But the wonderful thing about about the light of Christ is it doesn't just expose and cause us shame and embarrassment. It, it, 
It eats up that darkness. It absorbs that darkness so that we don't have to carry it any longer. And so as we conclude, I just want to ask two questions. The first is, do you, do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ could actually bring you out of the darkness of sin, the darkness of shame, and bring you into his marvelous light? Do you believe that, that Christ's death could result in the cleansing of all your unrighteousness and the forgiveness of all your sins so that you could stand righteous and blameless before God, our almighty judge? Well, I, I'm here to testify and proclaim along with the Apostle John that, that these things are true. These things are true. Jesus has died for our sins. The word of life, who became the manifested life, has come to give eternal life to those who turn to him in faith and repentance. And I tell you this so that you could also have fellowship with us. You don't always have to be that kid on the outside wishing that he was part of that group of people who, who are caring for one another, who are good friends. You can join the community of faith as we walk in the light with Christ, who is the light of the world. We have fellowship with one another. God's forgiveness is only found in the death of God's son. It's in the name of Jesus alone that we find salvation and forgiveness. And so let us, let us come to him. Let us turn to him. Let us look to him as our refuge and as our strength. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all sin. My last question is, do you want to grow in practicing and enjoying biblical fellowship? Do you want to grow in practicing and enjoying biblical fellowship? Whether you're a new Christian or whether you are a seasoned veteran Christian, all of us are seeking to grow in being people who faithfully, naturally, regularly practice and enjoy biblical fellowship. We want to become the people, the kinds of people who can enter into fellowship without much of a warm up. To be able to respond to the kind of generic question, how are you? With a brief word about how God has been faithful. We don't have to say a lot of words. You know, we're not trying to impress anybody. We're just trying to say, God is present in my life. I believe that. He's been helping me. He's been my rock and my refuge. He's been providing for all of my needs. Now, biblical fellowship, let's be honest, it isn't natural. It isn't easy. It's something that needs to be learned. It needs to be practiced. And the best way to learn is to learn by example, to imitate those who are already doing it well, and to practice. We need to practice if we're going to get uh, gain in any skill, in any practice. And that's one of the big reasons why we create our small groups, our truth application groups, our tags. We, we have them so that we can enjoy fellowship, but we also have them so that we can practice fellowship. We can learn how to have fellowship with our fellow believers. And so if you're, if you're not in a tag right now, um, I encourage you to join one, especially in this season when it is as easy as clicking on a link. You don't have to drive anywhere. It's not competing with much in our schedules. Uh, just click on a link and, uh, and see what fellowship looks like. It's a, our tags are a wonderful context for us 
to connect with one another on this deeper level of standing side by side as we behold the glory and beauty of Christ together. And if none of the tags that exist for us right now work for your schedule or for whatever reason um, there are obstacles to joining one, just let me know. You know, we are eager to create tags, to expand our tags, to serve the needs of the people who are part of our church. We want our people to be plugged into tags so that they could practice and enjoy the joy of biblical fellowship. Those who walk in the light as he is in the light have fellowship with one another. And so let us, let's do that. Let us walk side by side in the light of Christ together as we experience the joy of biblical fellowship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us into a relationship with you. And thank you for bringing us into a relationship with one another. It is all made possible through Christ and through Christ alone. He is uh, the light and he has uh, invited us into the light. He has called us, summoned us into that light so that we could have fellowship with one another. We pray that, that this, this joy would spread throughout our church, that those who have never experienced biblical fellowship or perhaps have never, haven't experienced it in a long time would come back to your people and, um, and find in your people here at Sovereign Grace a people who would not be judgmental or self-righteous, but a people who are kind, merciful, and gracious. We ask for this grace, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.